You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Katie Couric's podcast. That's right. Katie Couric has a podcast. If you've been thinking about politics a lot lately and who hasn't, you should really check out her show. It's from Earwolf. iTunes named it one of the best podcasts of 2016. Katie's a veteran journalist, and each week she talks with people making the headlines. They have intelligent conversation about what's really going on in America today. I listened to a couple episodes. Uh, she had David Farenthold. Uh, talking about the infamous Access Hollywood tape. Uh, I listened to the one where she went to Russia and talked to Edward Snowden. They were all great. So I encourage you, subscribe to Katie Couric today in iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also sponsoring the show today is Squarespace. It's a new year. Many of you out there may have resolved to take on a new challenge, a new business, new career, a new creative project. Whatever your next move might be, Tackle it with Squarespace. You can start a free trial today at squarespace.com. By entering offer code LONGFORM, you'll get 10% off your first purchase, and you'll be supporting this show. Squarespace, make your next move. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff from Atavist, joined here by uh, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. This might be our earliest call time. <laughs> in in recent if uh show length memory it feels good it feels good to be up and and working doesn't it aaron uh, <laughs> i've been up for several hours i get woken up by getting like uh jumped on around 5 a.m every day i've been up i've been up for days i just rode a city bike with a manic fury here. <laughs> i i endangered my heart on the on the road here you look calm man you're breathing easy you're in good shape I have I've soaked I've sweated through a sweater. <laughs> I can't see that from here. You look great, Evan. Who'd you talk to this week? This week I talked to Jeff Charlotte. Jeff is uh, an author of a bunch of books. Uh, a couple of which particularly interest me. They're about the intersection of uh, spiritual belief and politics and our political system. He writes about that a lot in different flavors. Um, he's also been writing for Esquire recently before that GQ Harper's, um, and I'm particularly interested in sort of the Trump world. And, uh, he wrote a piece last year, which stands up really well about the Trump campaign and seen through the lens of sort of, uh, spiritual belief. Uh, it's interesting stuff. Charlotte's one of those people I'm like, uh, surprised he hasn't been on yet, but I'm glad we're getting him now. This well, we've, right we've had people ask about getting um, people who write on the topic of religion on this show. And I mean, there aren't a lot of magazine writers who focus on religion. Um, 
You're welcome. <laughs> uh, as what, always, what o- yeah. What other favors have you done for people lately? Sign up for Mailchimp. You're welcome. <laughs> Fourteen million people did it because it's the best email service. Why aren't you one of them? I just punched a mic with my uh, emphasis there. That's passion. This is how I feel about Mailchimp. <laughs> Here's uh, Evan and Jeff Charlotte. Jeff Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Evan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah. Um, I have been interested to talk to you for a while. We tried to do it at one point. I had some scheme about doing it when you were in Ireland. What were you doing in Ireland? I teach uh, creative writing at Dartmouth College, and I was taking a group of 12 students uh, to Dublin for the term and teaching, I think, the first nonfiction class ever at Trinity University in Dublin. They were very puzzled as to what it was and why we would do that, and is that literature, but... We got through it. And so these, you took your students over and taught them in that environment. I took my students over and, and then taught a bunch of Irish kids, and which was actually fascinating. And I think uh, there was this great interest in literary journalism, which is my sort of preferred term for it, yeah. amongst these Irish kids, and frustration that in the Irish media landscape, there's not much room for that. So there's a little bit I imagine the way once upon a time there was these American kids who are sort of looking at English punk and so on. There really is a sort of Irish scene of uh, young Irish writers devouring the magazines that we all know that produce long form in the United States and thinking about what it is about America that produces this kind of work and wh- how they can do it in Ireland or why they don't do it in Ireland. I mean, there's there's about four or five writers who you would even call sort of long-form writers in the country. Oh, that's fascinating. So do you, do you have a theory as to why it's a particularly American approach? I have puzzled about it for a long time. And uh, it turns out there's an academic journal, Literary Journalism Studies. Mm-hmm. And they're very intent on this idea that this is global, right? Um, because that's how you get credibility, right? It's literature. And so they'll have a special issue on Slovenian long form. Oh. And they'll find a couple examples, usually by a lot of writers who are sort of enamored of the, the kind of concentration really in the U.S. and a few other countries. Um, India is interesting and in, in, in South America. But yeah, I do think there's peculiarities to the development of the press in, in America. I mean, if you go back, I think it's like 1886 or something like this, Matthew Arnold, you know, the great conservative literary critic, denounces American journalism. He says it's filled with vitality and and laughs. He doesn't say laughs. That's not, but, you know, he's like, it makes it sound great. And he calls it the new journalism. So Tom Wolfe thinks he invents that term. He's a, he's a century <laughs> late. He calls it the new journalism. But he says the problem, of course, is to his point of view, it's much too democratic. And he's very concerned about it leaking into British journalism as it did at that time with narrative journalism, you know, sort of narrative exposés of that late 19th century style. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to think that perhaps that we have this long-form tradition that it is actually inherently related to the democratic tradition, this idea of storytelling as opposed to the press being opinion. Most national presses have strong opinion journalism, mm-hmm. but that kind of narrative storytelling that's sort of stealing some of the fire of fiction and poetry and saying, we have as much right and power to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maybe American. 
Well, I may just be like, this is like an age of Trump. I'm like getting in on board with the new nationalism <laughs> and lit- American literary journalism for Americans. Is, you know. Yeah, we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get emails from all over the world, yeah. like cataloging the literary the, journalism. And you can do it, right? Places. I mean, this yeah, this journal will do it. I'm not yeah. kidding about the Slovenian issue. If you want to yeah. know, or or there's a great Romanian magazine, Decada Revista. Oh, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, there's there's stuff there, or there's a Napoli magazine. Unfortunately, just went out of business, but. You're not going to get fiction writers complaining. Why didn't the nonfiction writers get bigger book advances? You know, which is what we get here. Well, that's, I mean, one reason the sort of in the age of Trump, not the nationalistic part of it, is uh, it's a reason I'm glad we didn't talk before. uh, Because I think now, uh, not just because you wrote about Trump during the campaign, but I am very interested in, I mean, you write about religion a lot and the intersection of religion and politics. And religion is such an undercovered topic incredibly so that it, it's such a big part of america and so so undercovered in many ways and it seems particularly relevant at this time that intersection but i wanted to first talk a little bit about why you got interested in writing about religion in the first place and sort of how far back that goes i mean you know it's funny because i just wrote a little piece about this my uh, i'm jewish my daughter had a little encounter with some mild anti-Semitism in a small tablet, town, right? yeah. yeah, and uh, and I grew up as the Jew in this small town, and and so uh, that does make you a little bit alert to things that might otherwise be taken for granted. But I had no particular interest in study religious studies. Uh, there's a writer named Peter Manso who is a great novelist and essayist, and and is now actually the Smithsonian Museum's first curator of American religious history. And it was Peter's, Peter got me into it. He said, let's, uh, we made a, a little online literary magazine called Killing the Buddha, which still exists, um, run by new people now. But, uh, and his idea is like, let's just go around to churches and, you know, synagogues and so on. Let's write about them like theater. Let's just see the performance and understand. We both love some of those novels, like Go Tell It on the Mountain, James Baldwin and so on, which are so much driven by that kind of performance or or movies like Robert Duvall's The Apostle, you know, mm. a good preacher is something to behold. And also an American literary tradition, you know, like Jonathan Edwards is arguably the first American literary journalist, he was pre-American, but, um, you know, he's writing these sort of narrative reported accounts of these great awakening that he wants to spread around. So we, we started doing that. And I think that opened my eyes that religion was one, as you say, is like, oh, this is, this is my... I can have this. <laughs> and no, no one else wants this, so I can, I can have it. And I think for long-form writers, where we're so often trying to get beyond the stack of facts of conventional journalism, religion requires you to do that. You know, we're now talking about things unseen. We have to get into motive. We have to get at the very same things that we do in all long-form stories. What does a person believe? Why do they believe that? What does it feel like? That's the starting point and a religion story. So I, I, I came to it not with any, uh, let me uh, dig in on the American pluralistic project. I came into it opportunistically as a writer, as this is a place where I can really tell these kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Where had you been in your career up to that point, like when you met uh, Peter, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I studied uh, at Hampshire College with a writer named Michael Lessie, who was um, teaching was calling it literary journalism, which was, I think, this is the early 90s, and I think that was pretty unusual at that point. He he wrote a book, his most famous book was called Wisconsin Death Trip, which was a sort of seminal 
photography book of 19th century photographs altered to sort of show this idea that 19th century Americana is not all quaint and sweet, something we take for granted now, mm -hmm. early 70s. Mm -hmm. We didn't. And uh, sort of a photo historian. He got me into that documentary tradition. And then out of college, I got a job. And this is when I talk to like young writers about what to do, you know, and like they want to like maybe I'll get an internship at the New Yorker or Washington Post. And I always said, no, don't don't do it. Go someplace weird. I got a job at a Yiddish magazine in English called Pockentrager, the magazine of the Na National Yiddish Book Center. Huge budget for me to make a quarterly glossy magazine about Jewish culture, except for Israel and the Holocaust, which they felt were over. So anything <laughs> else. Yeah. So I could assign my, I assigned myself, um, it was the uh, 50th anniversary of uh, the Spanish Civil War and the American veterans of the Spanish Civil War, who are almost all Jewish, were going back to be made honorary citizens. So I just assigned myself to go to Madrid with them and wander around with these wild-eyed, radical octogenarians. And you could do these... Um, I know it was in English, but did you speak Yiddish? No. That was not a requirement. <laughs> no, that was actually one of my, my, my... That's how I got the job. They were, because it's a very contentious world, and they didn't want someone who was... I came in, and I said, you know, I actually don't speak Yiddish. Oh, that's good. That's good. And I said, well, I don't speak Hebrew. Oh, that's better. That's better. <laughs> I said, I was actually never bar mitzvah. He says, you are perfect. You're like ostensibly a Jew, but you know nothing and have no... Stand and you're going to encounter everything fresh. And I get to do these, you know, I mean, the stories in retrospect are horrible, but they didn't know that. They let me do a, a an 8,000 word story, you know. That took this very circuitous route and, and I kept on getting to do these longer and longer stories. And when I, I met Peter Manso, I was working for uh, a paper called The Chronicle of Higher Education, which is the trade publication, mm -hmm. right? It, what could be more boring um, in some ways? In other ways, they would say, you know, they're letting me do long profiles, three, four thousand word profiles. Pick a scholar who's doing something interesting, go and hang out with them for a week. You know, what you might do for a, a more broader general interest magazine, mm -hmm. you know. But that was a trap, too. You can get like, oh, this is pretty good. It's a pretty good gig. They pay me pretty well. And I get to sort of do interesting things. And you have to each time I'm, I'm i'm really good at quitting mm -hmm. um that's my my writing superpower <laughs> um and yeah at a certain point you have to just quit mm -hmm. without a plan um and then you tend to fall into a story and then that book was killing the buddha yeah yeah, yeah. I, quit, I quit that nice steady job and uh peter manso and i decided to make this book about religion in america sort of a varieties of religious experience and wandering around and Got a little advance. This was actually in the the last days of when publishing houses thought, you have a website? Mm. Oh, my God. How many people? And you could tell them anything. They, they, they didn't know. And, and, and they would throw money at you because you had a website. I mean, not throw money, but they give us enough money to live out of a car for a year. It was very, you know. It was good experience because when I started seeing what magazine expense accounts were like, I, I I couldn't believe it. I was like, well, I mean, obviously, like you, if you need a place to stay, oftentimes a church will let you sleep in the basement, you know. <laughs> and you know, like Esquire's like, no, that's uh, we're gonna put you up. Don't don't worry about that. Um, but it, that's good practice for also. You're not always gonna have the magazine behind you. You're gonna want to do stories 
is if you're working on a book, right? You need to, yeah, you need to learn those pragmatic things about how you do a story cheap. That's not just practical. That's shaping the story. Yeah, and that's how you keep getting to do stories that you want to do and not entirely stories that they're willing to pay for yes. at the highest yes. at the highest rate. Yes, we'll let you do this because it's not costing us that much. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's my specialty. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Blue Apron. Blue Apron ships you the ingredients to make incredible dishes at your home without a lot of work. I'm a person who can get into a bit of a rut. I was given a free burrito at my burrito place because I had bought so many burritos. That is not a good way to live. Blue Apron can help you live better. They ship you the exact amount of each ingredient required for the recipe, therefore reducing food waste. They also raise their beef humanely, their chickens free range, and their pork naturally. Uh, Some of the meals that I enjoyed this January. Seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney. Spaghetti squash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots. And my personal favorite, spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. So, check out this week's menu. Get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash longform. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash longform. You will be improving your life and supporting the show. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Also supporting the show today is Squarespace. It's a new year. You probably made some resolutions. Those might have included starting a new business, starting a new creative project. Whatever your next move might be, tackle it with Squarespace. It's used by a wide range of people and businesses, musicians, designers, artists, even restaurants. And it gives you the ability to create an online platform from which to make your next move. So what do you get? Award-winning templates. You get an intuitive website builder that does not require to use any code. Everything works with the click of a mouse. And there is nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. If you ever have any problems, which you probably won't, they've got award-winning 24-7 customer support. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter code LONGFORM to get 10% off your first purchase. That's LONGFORM for 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Here's Evan and Jeff. So in terms of reporting, I mean, one of the things in reading a lot of your stuff, I mean, there's different flavors uh, in in your different books, but you seem really good at just approaching and embedding yourself with ordinary people. And by ordinary people, I mean, you know, not like a profile subject that's been profiled before. You call them up, you arrange it, you show up, you hang out with them. I'm thinking about going up and just approaching everyday people and talking to them. And I'm very curious, is that something that you came to naturally as a sort of gregarious, curious person? Or is that something that you developed at a certain point? I want to know how to do this. I'm not gregarious at all. I'm, I'm, I don't like people. And, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, uh, but I'm not, I, I like so many writers, you know, sort of, there's the writer who's sort of like, they have this power to go out and be friendly and connect with people. And why not channel that into writing? And there's the writer who, you know, I don't talk to people unless I have a notebook. Um, uh-huh. And that's my excuse to engage with the human race, which I'd like to do. I just don't know how to do it otherwise. Um, and uh, 
you know, that first book, traveling around, knocking on church doors and said, hey, do you have a basement we could sleep in? You know, that helped. But uh, I think I my first sort of national magazine story was for Harper's Magazine. Uh, it was called Jesus Plus Nothing. And I had stumbled and out of my interest in religion and, and this thing that ended up becoming a big part of my career, two books, this sort of very odd religious organization called the Fellowship of the Family. And they had this house for young men who were apprenticing themselves to Washington religion power brokers. And so I wrote the story. I went and lived with these guys for a month and, uh, and, and wrote the story. And uh, Harper's subtitled it uh, Undercover Among America's Secret Theocrats. And I was like, well, they're not theocrats exactly. And I, and I actually wasn't undercover because I just came in and said, hi, my name is Jeff Charlotte. I'm working on this book called Killing the Buddha, which is an old Buddhist idea. And since they're fundamentalist Christians, they may have interpreted that differently. And like, killing the Buddha, that's, that's right <laughs> but on. But they didn't interrogate you about, well, what is this? They did ask what? me and I never lied. And, <laughs> and this undercover sort of, and a lot of the work, because I oftentimes go to very right-wing worlds, which are sort mm -hmm. of at odds. And people imagine that there's all this sort of stealth work. And, you know, there's a sort of James Bond persona. And I always think of it, it's more like Inspector Clouseau. You know, like I just come and knock on the door. <laughs> Hi, what you guys doing? And it's astonishing how many people will let you in. But it was funny that's that first book even, I was reading back some of the reviews and it was portrayed as like, you like snuck in basically, but you said, it I'm a reporter. Drove me nuts. It drove me nuts. I know one of the reviews that said that now <laughs> that guy, that reviewer is now my colleague and I've always wanted to say, I did not. And, and it was frustrating because it was this idea that there was something unethical and that this was lying. And while I'll, I will actually defend undercover work, mm -hmm. I just don't do it because I'm not good at it. I'm not a good actor or liar. And you had access to the this group, the families, like archives. I, so I went and I lived with these guys for a month and uh, you had to be invited and uh, a brother of a friend sort of invited me. And and I really owe a lot to an editor named Bill Wasik, who's now at uh, New York Times Magazine and then was at Harper's. That was his first feature as an editor and my first feature. And so we... Oh, well. we um, at every turn, I'd like, oh, this isn't really a story. I was ready to walk away so many times. And and, and Wasik really saw the shape of things and said, keep going. And then after I wrote the piece, he said, you know, you could do a book about that. I was like, oh, yeah, well, that's interesting you say that. There are these 500 boxes of papers out of Wheaton College. And he's like, yeah, that's how you make a book. <laughs> you know, you you have this. and that. So I went out there and I had, I had real access and I could still travel around. And I, then I did two books about these guys. I did the book, did middling to depressing, and uh, um, and then a bunch of them, the men had uh, politicians involved and had affairs, <laughs> all and they all lived in this this sort of frat house, this frat Christian frat house in, in Washington, and suddenly it was in the news again. And I did the second book um, for the high principle of the crazy advance they would give me to do another book to do this, but at the same time, I suddenly had more access, even from the organization. And this goes back to like the, the thing that I like want writers to know, you can knock on the door and people will answer the door, it's weird. I had just written a very critical book about the entire history of this organization. Yeah, I would assume they would say, you betrayed us, you were inside, we'll never let you in again. No, they said, let us explain, come here. <laughs> and and uh, um, I mean, there's some religious stuff going on there. They, they are Calvinists in a sense, and they believe that they are a new chosen. Um, uh, and that since you only get in 
because God wants you there. So I was a, a member of the family. I was a bad brother, but I was still a brother. And they really thought the next book, the sort of the main sort of piece of it was built around um, uh, uh, an initiative in Uganda, uh, the so-called Kill the Gays Bill, which is pretty self-explanatory and was genocidal in intent and was created by this organization's Ugandan branch with some support from Americans, although none of the Americans, when it came down to that level of stuff, they're like, oh, no, no, that's not what we meant. Yeah. You know, you get all these sort you of know, like raging American it. homophobes. And then these Ugandans are like, really? Homosexuality is the greatest threat to Western civilization? Okay, we'll kill them all. And then the Americans, you know, their overheated rhetoric suddenly is coming home to roost and they don't know what to do because that's not what they want. But uh, um, they invited me into that story. I mean, I, I, I don't have those investigative chops that I could have gotten into that. First, I was writing about it, and then I, I saw it in the news, and I was talking on an African radio show, and the author of the law calls in and invites me to Uganda, and where he'll explain to me why it's really very reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and... That's this is the someone is planning genocide invites you to lunch you, you go <laughs> you, you go because yeah. that's going to be interesting unless you're you know you're potentially the subject of the genocide that that would be the reason not to go it's probably safe to say that anyone who's planning genocide once they've crossed that threshold really everyone is you that know is fair. Fair. but uh, but yeah but then I'm interested in how you balance because as you said this has relevance for I think reporting on Trump and and many other things like. You, you entered this world in which uh, there's this group, they're shadowy, they're secretive, yeah. th but they also are very influential, like National Prayer Breakfast, like all of these things are connected to this group. But then how do you balance uh, trying to convey that versus seeming to be conspiratorial, seeming to say like, oh, they have their hand in everything? Because it was incredible the things that they did and maybe do have their hands in that you uncovered, but then how do you kind of write that and portray that in a way that people don't dismiss as I think conspiracy? I, I think this is one of the sort of the key shortcomings of contemporary journalism and journalism in general. It's both a sort of the strength of journalism, right? So when we look for corruption, we look for an envelope filled with cash, right? I remember I was doing a Rolling Stone profile of uh, the then most conservative Senator Sam Brownback, um, who was also lifelong sort of member of this organization and a really fascinating guy. Uh, he's now the governor of Kansas and has done, you know, which people are starting to call Brown Backistan. He's just, I mean, if you want a picture of what's coming for all of us, take a look <laughs> at Kansas. Kansas. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, his thing was he never touched anything that had to do with money. He was one of those senators who was really good at at being sort of above the fray and floating. So you can either say, well, no, no, nothing to see here, or you can say, there's still a culture here, right? There's still, this is not a conspiracy. This is not a, a, an illegal bio. I mean, that's the one thing. You, I would be frustrated when people would say, well, Charlotte says there's a conspiracy. And I'm like, actually, maybe 10 times in the book, it's that there's a sentence that says, this is not a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, this is a cultural movement. That's what the religious right does. Mm -hmm. They gained power, you know, famously by targeting PTAs. There was a time when they couldn't get really outlandish guys elected nationally, but they could take over PTAs. And they did. And 
you know, liberals sort of look up and, oh, our schools are not what we thought they were. Or Betsy DeVos, our new secretary of education. If you come to Betsy DeVos cold and look at, you know, all that she has done to destroy public schools, you think there's, you know, a Mr. Burns-like evil conspiracy. If you pay attention, you say, oh, this is a person who has been working systematically, funding, um, I mean, nasty politics. And not just because I disagree with them, but the way she does them. She's a rough politician in a way, right? That's not a conspiracy. And most of it is really sort of in, it's in the public if we pay attention to it. I just driving over here, listening, I guess they had Mike Pompeo, the new director of the CIA. Um, and apparently there's some speeches in which he's sort of talking about a kind of war with Islam, right? This is not a conspiracy on his part to take over the CIA. This is a guy who goes, he's a congressman, and he makes speeches about his Islamophobia, and, and he's appointed. Um, how do we do that? I, I think there was a, um, I remember back in the Bush years, um, there was a profile of John Ashcroft, uh, who was then attorney general, very, for younger folks. He was the, the Jeff Sessions of his day, this very right. One of his first things, I think, when he went in the Justice Department was to have justice draped because she's bare chested. Um, he also, um, my favorite thing that he ever did was, did you ever see that video of him singing? Yo, he's that, a that, very uh, fine singer. <laughs> yeah, he sings these sort of patriotic religious songs. That yes. Are, it was really something. He, he in fact, used to uh, apparently do, I never was there for one of these, but he used to do um, uh, weekend piano concerts at the, uh, the Arlington headquarters of this religious group, the family. Hmm. And his career had been shaped by them. He was a guy who'd sort of come up through them, right? And I, I, don't, I don't remember the New Yorker writers doing. It was a good piece overall, but um, I, it wasn't you, I don't think. You never wrote about John oh, no, Ashcroft. Um, uh, and they note that he um, starts every day with, he brings some people in for a prayer meeting, right? And if you had asked, you would have found John Ashcroft's long relationship with this organization. I don't think he would have lied. I think he would have told you. They didn't ask him what they prayed for. You know, this is the press doesn't do that. Well, what really? You start every day with prayer. What do you pray for? Who do you understand that you're praying to? Why do you have these people to pray with? How does collective prayer work? Um, and when you start getting those answers, you start you say, oh, he's an Assemblies of God guy. Is this a form of spiritual warfare? I, and this, by the way, I think applies not just to this kind of political stuff. I think about it as applying to all sorts of stories. Like, what are the places that we as journalists don't... Like, if you're just doing a profile that doesn't seem to be part of the profile, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's one category that gets put out. But, I mean, how often in doing a profile do we talk to a subject where it is not immediately relevant, talk to them about their sex lives. Mm -hmm. Here's a huge part of your life that, you know, and I, I have no advice on how to do that <laughs> diplomatically, um, but I've been there where it comes up and you let that confessional moment that so many subjects have, right? They want to talk about that. Um, Michael Hastings, right? He was the Rolling Stone journalist who uh, exposed uh, General McChrystal, I think. And this, to me, I use this with students. Like, this is just one of the great lessons, how he did that expose of, you know, he's sitting around with these guys and they're talking trash. It wasn't profound policy disagreements that brought this general down. It was trash talking. And I remember at the time, there's a bunch of journalists said, well, I've heard that stuff too. I just didn't write it. Well, why didn't you write why it not? down? That's, 
that's again that's sort of that's revealing of who these people were and i i remember feeling the thing like oh my goodness i've at times have written that stuff down and i realized the times that i've let it slide by you know i was uh writing about jim webb senator from virginia once and as senator his secondhand man um was um guy named Mac who'd been in Vietnam with and whose life he had saved. And Mac had one arm and uh, Mac was his driver. And uh, I was somewhere in, I don't know, Southern Virginia with them. And then they were were driving back separately to Washington. And uh, they were just walking over to the car with uh, half a case of beer. And Mac, the one-armed driver, and and Webb were going to get in the car with half a case of beer. and, And I left that detail out. I mean, basically, that should be the end of my career, right? <laughs> and it just felt like, oh, they don't, you know, that's, they don't really want to be seen. I mean, like that's private to them. Yeah. The way our manners are always intruding and like we're respecting privacy as we should, but not in an ethical way, in a mannered way. Hmm. You know, that wasn't ethics. There was no ethical reason not to include that. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because I was reading uh, the profile you wrote recently for Esquire about this pastor oh, yeah. in Florida. And uh, that seemed like you did exactly the, I don't want to say unmannered thing that you were lacking in manners. But there you had a situation where there was like a handler who was trying to keep you from seeing certain parts of this. Yeah congregation and there's just part after part where you're sort of like he told me not to go there so then i went there yeah oh yeah now that was it was funny this is a church uh vu church in miami um with this pastor who's a sort of young hipster he looks like leonardo dicaprio he likes to tell you that a lot and he does and his father's a mega church pastor and uh, he has a, a, a TV show, a reality show called Rich in Faith with him and his beautiful wife, like partying in Miami. And they have, the, he's the pastor who did Kanye's wedding, right? That's his claim to fame. Celebrity, other celebrity other associations. Celebrities, right. He wrote something like uh, ministers to Justin Bieber's soul, such as it is. Yes, you can go on Instagram <laughs> and actually see them having a squirt gun battle on hoverboards with Justin Bieber as they sing um, Mighty God. Um, it's deeply <laughs> spiritual. And uh, and I've been writing about religion for a long time. It was like, yeah, I can do that story. That'd be pretty easy and make some money and, you know, think a little bit about it. And and I was interested in the in the because for the Trump story, I'd been reading Norman Vincent Peale, who is a sort of um, this the positive thinking, the power of positive thinking, and one of Trump's great heroes. Mm-hmm. And I'd been thinking about that kind of religion without teeth, right? Religion without sin, in a way, you know. Um, I believe in sin. You, you gotta, you can do religion. You gotta have a sense of morality. Like this is good and this is bad. Well, this is like it's all good. You know, back to everyone in the church would say that constantly. It's all good, mm-hmm. not all of it. Um, and uh, so I went down there to do the story, and I was so it was like the most adversarial story. I've never seen such restraint and such control and such desire. And it was a little bit, I think, coming out of celebrity culture that you have to control the message mm-hmm. they didn't want me to talk to members of the church i'm like well that's what i do i actually not really here to talk to you i i want to know what does it feel like to be in this church and uh yeah esquire wouldn't let me put in i wanted to put in more of the conflict which at one point involved raised voices and just sort of standing there those are and, my favorite parts of yeah that's, that's, that's just like, like the, how is this reporting working like you're standing in a parking lot and they're saying okay, you need to go over here. And you're like, but why are all those people going over yeah. there to that yeah. laundromat? 
what are they doing? I'm yeah. going to go. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I think magazine editors uh, uh, and I have a wonderful editor in there. One of my favorite editors, Eric Sullivan. Um, and he won't be surprised by me saying this, you know, editors always, oh, that makes you seem a little unprofessional, you know, I'm like, but this guy, the handler was screaming at me. This is not a democracy. This is not a democracy. I'm like, that's a great scene. This time I didn't flinch. I knew that was good. And I, I did not put that in. But there was enough with that church. And, and I got there. I, I've always been very subjective as a writer. And I have no problem with that. Um, you know, I got there. And I think at the end of the story, I said, look, I've been writing about American religion for 20 years. This is the most vapid, empty thing I've ever seen. And that drove the piece. And I pretty quickly realized there was nothing evil. They're not doing, you know, evil. They're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, it was just so empty. And it was interesting because then that story, the most traction it got, which I think is unusual for Esquire, was among sort of young Christian readers who are frustrated by the emptiness of kind of celebrity Christian culture. And they were just passing this around and saying, yes, this is what we feel. This is what we know about our churches. And that came out of that, that subjectivity and that willingness to have that argument, which I know some writers aren't, and I respect that, um, but I've always been interested in what happens. Um, I don't go picking, I'm about to sound like some guy, I don't pick fights, I finish them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, but I don't, I don't go picking fights, but I am interested in when, when they, like you see like, oh, organically, this is going into conflict. Just like we know in our personal relationships, oftentimes a lot of important stuff comes out of those conflicts. Yeah. And if you can say, okay, this is coming to that and I'm going to stay in that place and I'm going to stay in conversation with you just as we do in a personal relationship, hopefully, you know, things are going to get much more interesting there. And I think that's been, uh, those stories where that's possible are the things that I'm I'm, I'm most interested in like I, I get asked sometimes to write about some right wing. I got asked to write about Rick Perry uh -huh. once, and I was like, I, I don't want to write about. I'm never going to have an argument with Rick Perry. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's nothing. He he's sort of like that church. I think he's a, a sort of vapid, and and you want those those true believers who, if you disagree with them, they'll keep going because it's important to them for you to understand this thing. Yeah, They're not like just the going to say, rights. I reject you. Yeah, the men's rights guys. Yeah, that seemed like, oh. did, I was curious when you go into something like that, what's your sort of argument to them? Like, I'm here to listen to you. I'm here to understand you. And then they sort of take on the persona of trying to convince you that uh, they're not as far out there as as they've been portrayed. No, they want to like, we're, we're way more far out. <laughs> Dude, you, you don't know, you know, these, these guys, this is a story for, for GQ and also that wonderful editor, Eric Sullivan, it was his idea, in fact. And um, he says, have you seen these guys? These are, you should write about these guys. Because he knows I like these sort of, these right-wing subcultures that I don't agree with, but if you can go and find the humanness in them, not in the sense of like, hey, we're all alike, because I think most of the pieces I do still end up being sharp. And there's a certain, sometimes the anger is there. And with that one, the leader of the movement is like, he says, and they were pissed. That was the worst reaction. I mean, scary, dangerous, um, publishing my home address, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But this guy, he says, he says, Charlotte's a great writer. He's such a good writer. It's a shame that he's such a good writer. And, and he got some things so right, you know, he really liked the writing. And 
That's high praise. Yeah, it was high praise, but it wasn't like it was fair. No, it was, I am an evil uh, feminazi and also overweight. They started putting lots of pictures of me and saying, look how fat Charlotte is, like, because that really shut me down. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it was, a, But those guys, uh, they were having a convention. These are men who believe the idea that it's men who are discriminated against in society. They have all. They take this sort of barrage of interesting and reasonable complaints, paying attention to the staggeringly higher rates of suicide amongst men, unemployment amongst men, not finishing school. There's a lot of stuff there, right? And there's a lot to think about through a gender analysis. There are also, by the way, a lot of feminist thinkers who think about those things. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to understand that. They think feminism is just saying... I want what you have and give it to me. That That's what they think it is, as opposed to saying, well, what is this construct we have of gender and how does it foreclose opportunities for women, of course, but also even for men. So the MRAs could be great. They could be this wonderful thing doing that. Instead, they are mainly saying that rape is, they range from uh, rape is vastly overstated to there are some who say that rape just does not actually exist. And what they got really pissed at was um, there are among them, they also want to feel free to talk and, you know, mm-hmm. talk like Trump about women. Anti-political correctness. They're anti-political correctness. Stuff. They're not all right-wingers, which is which is weird. Um, a lot of libertarians, a lot of tech guys, and uh, some of them, not the majority, and they were very upset because I included one of these guys in there, uh, an age-of-consent activist, oh, yeah. which is that one of the dark. creepiest corners you can encounter. These are men who believe that they should organize to lower the age of consent and they have all the the creepy biology. They're like, well, menstruation begins on average at 12.3, at which point there's really no logical, it's horrifying. And, um, but again, I went to the convention and I I just, I said, I am interested in these things, these points you have. And I, I didn't know about suicide and I didn't know, and I knew about prison. And, and, you know, when they start talking about war and the way society is organized as the soldiers. These are all really legitimate things. They read some of my stuff and they, because a lot of them are libertarians, there are some who are real critical of the religious right. So some of them had read read my books. And then actually when I would hear them talking about rape, I would like, give, my, give that book back. You, you can't have that. That's not for you. I don't want to have it. They, they let me in. And that one, I brought with me two friends and, uh, and I identified them as friends. And uh, one of them is a journalist named Blair Braverman. And um, she had a radically different experience as a woman at this event. Um, and she documented it. And so I said, okay, I'm, that's legitimate for me to use. I can say now, Blair Braverman, you know, this guy said, let's sit down and write a poem about how rape accusations are false. This is a weird thing that happened. And he yeah. was doing this as a way of hitting on her, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think. I don't know. That I can't prove that he was hitting on her, but it seemed... Let's go sit together and write poetry. Um, and it was interesting too that you know, as they called me fat, they called her much worse. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and you really, this is true. Like if you're a male, like you write about the right, you get you get some crap. You know, but every time I've collaborated with a woman journalist in the exact same story, the garbage is directed her way. So much more vile and angry. So have you had points where you kind of wanted out of this stuff? Like, Funny you, you should ask. <laughs> like you didn't want to write about it anymore? I'm you don't done. Want... Oh, you are done now. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite done. I, uh, uh, sort of personal, three months ago I had a heart attack. Um, oh, wow. And uh, I just finished 
not the first draft, a sort of a medium draft of a manuscript of a, a book made out of this project that I started doing a couple of years ago, these Instagram essays, mm -hmm. using the caption, tell stories. There's a few writers doing this. Uh, Neil Shea is a great National Geographic writer, does it. And we have a project with Virginia Quarterly Review. So if you're listening to this and you want to try this, we, we are looking for journalists, not photographers, just people take snapshots with their phones, not to explain it, using that image basically as the nut graph. And what happens when you don't have to do a nut graph, right? And I had started doing that partly out of frustration with the forms of magazine journalism. Mm -hmm. And then it ended up becoming this way of sort of like looking at the stories that I'd been telling. And they had added up, you know? I, I, I'd never understood people who didn't like dark stories. Like, why would you know? I mean, you know? And people like, I don't go see violent movies. Like, why not? And I was suddenly understanding why. Like, oh, my, this stuff has added up. I've been... Uh, I'm not a war reporter. This is not PTSD, but I have spent 20 years with people struggling in dark places and added up. And uh, I finished the manuscript. I'm like, I think I really need to change uh, what I write and how I write. And then I had a heart attack and that further encourages, you know, it, it it felt very related to the work I've been doing for a long time. The sleeplessness, the uh, you know, the stress of, of that stuff, and, uh, and what I'm still trying to figure out, like, can you do the same kind of work about, and can I live without difficult people? Because I like the stories with difficult people. I like the stories about people who are dismissed as monsters. I hate the term monster. Monster is a safe term for us, right? Uh, Trump's a monster. Well, great, we don't need to wrestle with, uh-oh, he's not a monster. He's he's in this human family with us. Mm -hmm. This is not, I'm not normalizing him. I'm acknowledging the fact, well now, well, what's wrong with us? Um, if, if Trump is human, what's wrong with you? You know, what's wrong with this the human condition? Um, and it's also, it's a way of not dealing with the fact of this. I'm interested in finding ways, I'm talking with my editors, uh, um, how can I still in, work in that vein of, of writing about people who are somehow othered either through their own horrible deeds or through their marginalization, but without the stories always end so darkly. And, and uh, so that's what I'm trying to figure out. But here along comes this time, right? And like, is now the time for a journalist who spent a long time on the right to say, sorry, guys, I'm, I'm done. The Trump cabinet, this religious organization, Sessions, Pence, DeVos, Carson, and Owen Coates are all longtime family. I mean, like, these are the guys, I know these guys. My uh, 2010 book, uh, C Street, ended with, so it's not going to be this right winger, but you know, maybe in 2016, I actually said this in 2010, it'll be a little known Indiana congressman named Mike Pence, you wow. know, and here he is. Um, yeah, this is the ultimate culmination of that work. It's like now it is now but I, in the highest positions of power. I am working on a project that I can't talk about sort of related to the right and Trump and trying to figure out how I can do it. And, I, and I'm curious about if, say, resistance to Trump can take the form of, not of like profiles of like someone who's doing just darn good work. Um, you know, I, I just can't get into that. Um, it's like we thought they were good and they're good. There's no tension in that story, you know. But if journalistic 
narrative storytelling resistance to Trump can can take a form other than diving into the darkness. I don't know yet. Mm. You know. Well, let's talk a little bit about that Trump profile in the Times Magazine, just because I want to make sure I cover that. Because I I went back and reread it, and I feel like it really stands up after the election. And it seemed to me the reason was that you did not approach Trump from what are these people like, what's their, even their economic situation or what do the polls say or what's going on? It was like through the lens of belief and like yeah. you were almost attending a service like you had driven around the country and attended church services and you were looking at it through sort of like not a spiritual lens, but a lens of like, this is different than a very practical, uh, this is why I support Trump because X, Y, and Z, and he's going to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. I should say the idea was um, this editor I mentioned before, Bill Wasik, now at the, the Times Magazine. And at the time, I was working on another Times Magazine story about um, people who live in welfare motels. Uh-huh. And so I and I just been spending some very dreary days um, and I like that work. I, I had sought that work out, but I was like, but this stuff is going on and I'm just passing, uh, you know, I was made to cover Trump. I had actually early on in August of 2015, I had asked some editors if I could write about Trump and, and, and one editor said, no, no, we're going to have a kind of a more of a funny writer do it. And I'm like, no, no, I didn't, I didn't, I never predicted he's going to win, but I, I knew that he was, despite his buffoonishness, there was forces that were lifting him up. And and Wasik saw that too. And Wasik calls and says, "Look, can, you know, it was I think eleven, and I got onto a plane at two. And I never, I never get to do stories like that, you know. So I felt like very urgent, and you know, racing off to a Youngstown, Ohio, um, and to do a story and to sort of see, just to go to the rallies and see what I would see with my religion writer's eyes about um, belief there. Um, and the first rally I went to in Youngstown, Ohio." I didn't go in the press pen. I just mm-hmm. went. And that was I guess that was a little bit undercover, right? When I was in the midst of that crowd, there's no way I would have said I was a journalist. I would have I have no question I would have gotten clocked. There was I mean, I was standing around with people who were talking about how much they'd love to get their hands on a CNN reporter, you know. Um and a lot of it's just talk, but it it was worked up and but uh yeah, and I, they, they were just clearly religious events. There was that was a huge thing. I mean, this is you want know, to talk about press failure. Every one of those rallies started with a preacher. Did you ever see that covered? And the preacher at the Youngstown, the first one I went to, I I know the religious right. This guy was hard right, like hard right. And the crowd that wasn't the people around me at least weren't real churchgoers. This is a fail. We don't understand. There's lots of people who aren't actually religious, but they like the idea of it. This, by the way, is. Putin's Russia too. Nobody goes to church in Russia, but boy, do they love their church. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the same here. They were all fired up on this this stuff. I'm like, I'm looking back at the press pen. No one's paying attention. This isn't the event. They weren't paying attention also to the fact that uh, I don't know that most of them, but many, many at least of the rallies, it would always begin with a black preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, crowd would be mostly white, not entirely white, mostly white. Begin with a black preacher. This was a smart move, right? This was inoculating the white crowd from the idea that they're racist. I really like that black preacher up there, right? But you go there, and why wasn't the press? There were other reporters who just went in as part of the crowd, but not very many. And that seems very peculiar to me. 
they, they wouldn't say, look, this guy is restricting access to a legitimate story. This is not just like stuff. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's legitimate reason to get yourself a ticket and just go in as part of the crowd. And they didn't do it. And when you did it, you found that stuff. And then you started paying attention to like what was the shape of the religion, which for Trump was really a prosperity gospel. Yeah. It's back thing. to the Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, thank you for saying it holds up. I do think it holds up. And at the time I was frustrated because I thought, man, I've, I've got something great here. And I don't think I've ever, that, that was like one of the least responded to stories I've ever done. Oh, really? Normally you do a big story. You make the media rounds nothing. Why do you? Um, why did you have a theory at the time? Trump is a joke. You, yeah, you know it was. It was still Trump was still a point. joke. Yeah, um, that was before he won Indiana. When people started like, oh, 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 huh? He beat Ted Cruz in Indiana. That's disturbing, right? And it wasn't political reporting the way political reporting is supposed to be, right? right. Um, it would have been fine if I'd gone to a West Virginia town and talked about, you know the day the coal mine closed or whatever. And I, I like those stories. I'm not bad-mouthing that, but it was such a narrow frame of what those people were. Yeah. Um, and I hope I hope we, you know, there's no way to say this without sounding really egotistical, but more reporters need to do this. This idea, and now we're in this place where we're in the debate, like, do we pay attention to Trump voters or do we not? Because we don't, you know, the 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 whole thing about that the A and E documentary about KKK right, right, that right. got cancelled. And I haven't seen the documentary. But the idea that we don't want to know what's going on in that world, not to normalize it, but you know, maybe this does go back to being like as a little kid being the Jew in town, like, I wanna know what are you learning at Sunday school? Because it doesn't sound good. <laughs> yeah. um, what are they doing in the woods over yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Um I think we need to know that stuff and 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 that does mean going and listening and recognizing the differences and so on um and that there's a tenor of conversation there and we need to know that language yeah you know so so last question for you and you touched on this a little bit in terms of are there ways to use this work to sort of approach trump but i mean you teach this kind of work you do this kind of work literary journalism whatever people want to call it. Do you think in this current environment that there's space for that work to land? I think there's only space for that kind of work. I think, but I do think that it's a documentary moment. And when I think about the sort of the history of literary life in America, moments when it is really vitally engaged in the culture, uh, 60s and the 30s, which coincidentally are the two great moments for long form mm -hmm. nonfiction, right? Mm -hmm. For documentary work. And I think, I think that's what's called for, those long stories. You, you also need, right, you need, you know, whatever, the intercept, like, giving you the scoops and so on. And you definitely need David Fairhold from the Washington Post doing that hard work. Absolutely. Um, but we've just experienced a radical, profound failure of comprehension. You don't fix that with hard news. You fix that with story. Well, Jeff, thank you for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Evan. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. 
Thanks to Jeff Charlotte for coming in. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor this week was Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you, Janelle. And our intern is Courtney Harrell. Our sponsors this week were Squarespace, Blue Apron, and as always, MailChimp. I'm Evan Ratliff, the co-host of this podcast. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.